Earlier this evening, I was on my back porch and I was standing there and I saw a pair of scissors sitting on the table on the back porch. And then it occurred to me that maybe that's the beauty of still life, you know, still life photographs and how cool they are. It's that moment in which time passes and nothing changes. And it extols the concept that nothing changes without a creative or intellectual intervention. But that happens to be none of our topics for today. You remember how two or three episodes back I said that we could always talk about death? We can always talk about death. Well, we're gonna talk about death again, because we always can. The The whole concept of the right to die is actually something that that I discussed in the second ever episode of Overthinker. I'll link to it down below. And I covered a lot of my basic thoughts there, but I also recently read an article on Vox because California recently allowed assisted suicide in certain cases. And this article on Vox was somebody talking about their experience being at somebody's death party. The justification, almost always, and in the case of this article that I read, I'll link it below if you're curious, but uh, it's not a fun read. It's always about suffering, that this person would be better off not suffering, and so they should be allowed to decide that they want to die now rather than at a time of natural death or later on. They shouldn't have to suffer any longer. Now, what I said before and what I'll say again is that the right to die on a fundamental philosophical level does not exist because we did not choose to live. We didn't ordain our life. And as such, we do not have the authority to ordain our own death. But what was different about when I read this article is that I realized that life is not about avoiding suffering. If the purpose of life were to avoid suffering, then we should advise no one to have children. We should advise everybody not to challenge anything or ever try anything because you might suffer. Life is not about avoiding suffering. Now, I will just add a caveat that I, am, I, do, I have not had an experience with terminal illness um, with terminal pain of any kind. And so, in a sense, there's a whole element of this, uh, an experience of this that I can't speak to. But extrapolate the concept. If someone has the right to die because they may continue to suffer, do I have the right to die in spite of not having terminal pain, not having any of these things? Do I have the right to die because I may suffer in the future? Maybe I'll get cancer. Maybe I'll be in an, in an industrial accident. No, I don't have that right. Everyone would tell me that's absurd, and rightfully so. In that sense, defining life by the avoidance of suffering, to me, is just the ultimate westernized privilege. And if you're saying that it's terminal and there's, there's no hope for improvement, what if I determine that my psychological state, my depression, what if I determine that... Um, that my life or that life in general is meaningless and in that sense is terminal and pointless and causes me distress and is suffering and therefore I need the right to die. We should be much more careful with these things. And the fact that this is getting litigated in the United States, the fact that this is actually legal in some capacity in California, completely 
befuddles me because in the founding of America, it was never that the government granted us our rights. The government recognized our rights. That's how America was founded. And the second that we imply that the state has the ability to grant us the right to die, we also imply that it has the ability to rule our life. And that's not in any sense, the philosophical foundation of this country. And I'm not interested in getting into the politics of this per se. I'm just saying from a standpoint of legal consistency, of philosophical consistency, that we need to acknowledge some very basic things before we just accept this as a civil rights movement, as something that is anything but twisted Privilege. Now, speaking of the redefinition of society and the meaning of life and humanity, etc., this question actually comes from my brother Alex. Now, his questions are subject to a higher standard because he's my brother, but this question happens to surpass that standard. What he asked was Will robot artificial intelligence be granted the right to vote? Now, you guys may not have seen this or remember this, but a few years back, there was a controversy over the copyright infringement of a monkey. A journalist let a camera get away from him, and some monkeys took some pictures, and PETA claimed that the monkey had the rights, the copyright to those photos, because the monkey took the photos. And this was like a real legal case. And there's other actually strange legal cases like this, where a monkey or some animal is being debated about their rights in these terms and whether or not certain human rights actually apply to an animal in this case. And if we're confused about that, artificial intelligence being granted rights in my mind is a complete slam dunk because artificial intelligence has things that animals don't even have. Um, the, in theory, they would have adaptive learning abilities and intuition and autonomy, um, but would possess sort of an intellectual capability that would surpass that of animals. That's the whole reason we're making it. We're not making cute digital pets, although that may be the predominant use model. Artificial intelligence, the idea is for it to solve some of our bigger problems, for it to be in some ways smarter than us. And so in that way, 100%, I envision in the future that artificial intelligence may be granted the right to vote. And in theory, artificial intelligence may even be better at picking candidates because it shouldn't be subject to things like fake news and that guy looks sweaty in the debate, so he must have the wrong policies. And these kind of psychological hiccups that human beings have, artificial intelligence, in theory, wouldn't have things like that. They may have something much worse, but there's a possibility they may be better at voting than we are. And there's a sub-question to Alex's question, which is, since AI, the artificial learning, is merely determined by the input that it's given, how is that different than children in the education system? And I will just say that this is totally valid because I think that there is a true possibility that in the future, the that an artificial intelligence could potentially possess more human-esque characteristics than like a really lazy person. I don't know, like a, somebody who is really not taking advantage of the human experience versus like a highly intelligent artificial intelligence, th there may actually be some real competition there. So the question then is, what is the crucible? What's the difference between a lazy person and a really productive AI? Um, and then that same question is kind of arising in terms of what's the difference between us 
putting children through an education system and us giving input to an artificial intelligence. And this is something that I mentioned in an, a video a while back. I'll link to it below. The crucial difference is the capacity for rebellion. In other words, rebellion is the exercise of free will. It doesn't mean that you have to rebel in order to be human, but it means that you have to possess the ability to rebel in order to be human. So um, the fact that you can have goth kids in school, like that wouldn't happen in AI school. There'd be no goth kid AIs, right? Like they would all be squeaky clean, great little programs. And if they weren't, we would fix it, right? Like we would just go into the code and treat it like the machine that it is. And so... You can't do that with people. People have free will and they have rights, which is where things get confusing because that capacity for rebellion, that free will, that ability is in theory the reason or somewhat the foundation of our human rights. And so if we start to grant those rights to artificial intelligence, legally and socially, you're really blurring those lines. Unless you're like Richard Dawkins and you say that we're merely dancing to our DNA and that because of evolution, we effectively have no free will, in which case the difference between us and AI is zero. As a matter of fact, the creation of AI, whether or not it happens, is completely not up to us. We're doing merely what we were pre-programmed to do since the beginning of time. But I tend not to subscribe to that theory. The last question comes from Becca in the Turks and Caicos. That's in the Caribbean, by the way. See, I googled it. And more or less paraphrasing her question, she's asking, is global warming important apart from politics, apart from sort of the partisan associations that the opinions on global warming have with politics? And the reason that this is such a great question is because it brings to bear the fact that this question exists. It points out very clearly that politics is antithetical to science. Politics is about short-term interests, and science is supposed to be about discovering objective reality and objective truth and, and testing hypotheses and then discovering things. Politics is about none of those things. And so the, the second that a, a noble pursuit like science um, and a topic like global warming or pretty much any other topic gets assigned political associations, it quickly distorts the science for the sake of politics, which is, you know, if you believe one thing about global warming, it's pretty much assumed that you are on one side of the political spectrum. And then all of the sort of debate and attacks instead arise from that political sphere instead of the scientific conversation. And then there's the grant programs. The government gives out the grants. What's the politics of the government? Who gets the grants to prove their hypothesis about the science? And then suddenly it's this giant, crazy, enormous feedback loop in which politics is 100% messing it over. So is global warming an important topic? I think it's a perfectly legitimate topic for scientists to investigate. You know, is the planet about to explode? Is there anything we can do about it? Like that's those are the kinds of questions that science is allowed to ask. And unfortunately, it's largely the role of politics and society to misappropriate those questions and turn them into what are effectively gang signs that we can use to then turn them into ad hominem attacks and win a reelection. I have my own opinion on global warming, but the reason that I hesitate to even disclose that opinion is because I know that that will then give me political associations that would cause unnecessary um, conversations in the comments that would probably likely lead nowhere. If you guys would like, I can go more in depth on global warming in a future episode um, and kind of dig into it a little bit more. It's been a few years since I've done research. 
Thanks for watching this video. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then subscribe to Overthinker on the platform of your choice. Also, if you had any thoughts or questions while you're listening to that, I would love to hear them. You can email me using bin at overthinker.show or you can use the contact form on the website, overthinker.show. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next Friday.